Welcome to the Annals of Internal Medicine, February 16th, 2021 podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to letting you know about what's new in the journal. There's a lot of new content, both related to the COVID-19 pandemic and about other important topics, so let's get going. Immunization information systems can play a central role in coordinating distribution, administration, documentation, and monitoring of COVID-19 vaccination by confidentially collecting and consolidating vaccination data from multiple providers within a geographic area. Among other tools, these systems are critical to ensuring adequate vaccination across targeted populations and geographic areas. Yet many clinicians are unfamiliar with the fact that the United States has an independent network of 61 immunization information systems in 49 states, the District of Columbia, three cities, and eight territories. The first new article I'll mention is a commentary by immunization experts from the University of Illinois College of Medicine, the American Immunization Registry, and the Immunization Action Committee that urges clinicians to familiarize themselves with the immunization information system in their own region to maximize the effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccination campaigns. They say that the more clinicians are aware of and connected to these systems, the better they will be able to address equitable vaccine distribution, manage vaccine uptake, and monitor vaccination series completion. The authors of the next article apply principles for clinical decision-making that the same authors reviewed in a recent annual series on clinical decision-making to address three ongoing areas of uncertainty related to diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of COVID-19. The authors briefly review the current state of knowledge, highlight the level of uncertainty, and then suggest a pathway forward for clinical decision-making during the pandemic. Their goal is to illustrate how one could use available strategies to evaluate new information as it emerges and incorporate evidence into clinical decisions at the individual and hospital levels. The next two articles I want to let you know about are not related to COVID-19. The first article reports a modeling study that examines breast cancer screening strategies that incorporate information about breast density. High breast density not only complicates mammography reading, it is also related to breast cancer risk. In the U.S., the Breast Density Notification Act requires providers to inform women who have a mammogram where they have dense breasts. However, women are unaware of their breast density classification until after their first mammogram. Researchers from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center used a microsimulation model to compare the health outcomes and cost-effectiveness of seven breast cancer screening strategies. No screening, biennial screening between ages 50 and 75, triennial screening between ages 50 and 75, and four density stratified strategies, two with baseline mammogram at age 40 and the other two at age 50. All density stratified strategies assigned annual screening to women with dense breasts and biennial or triennial starting at age 50 for women without dense breasts. The model suggests that the strategy with baseline breast density assessment at age 40, followed by annual screening between ages 40 and 75 for women with dense breasts, and biennial screening between ages 50 and 75 for women without dense breasts, had the greatest reduction in breast cancer mortality, but was also associated with a larger number of mammograms across lifetime and higher rates of false positives and overdiagnosis. A cost-effectiveness analysis that considered the benefits and harm showed that when compared to non-density stratified biennial screening during ages 50 to 75, 
the density stratified strategy yielded an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of about $36,000 per quality-adjusted life year, which is considered cost-effective in the U.S. In an accompanying editorial, Drs. Carla Kurlikowski and Kristen Bivens-Domingo note that a fundamental problem with measuring breast density and assigning screening frequency on the basis of one reading is that not everyone with dense breast is at increased risk for breast cancer. Only 24% of women with dense breasts are at a high risk for a missed invasive cancer within one year of a negative mammogram result. And these women can be identified using predictions from the Breast Cancer Screening Surveillance Consortium risk model combined with breast density categories. The editorials believe that this means that most women with breast dense can undergo biennial screening and need not consider annual screening or supplemental imaging. Screening women with dense breasts who are not at increased risk for breast cancers subjects them to harms from false positive tests without additional benefit. The editorialists also caution against using breast density alone to determine if a woman is at elevated risk for breast cancer. They write, quote, an attractive alternative is to focus on overall risk to select screening strategies rather than just on breast density because this approach better balances the benefits and harms of screening, end quote. Next is a new Annals Beyond the Guidelines Grand Rounds that features a general internist and a psychiatrist who both have expertise in addiction medicine, discuss the potential benefits and harms of recommending cannabinoids for a patient with painful neuropathy. Since 2019, hemp-based CBD products have been available in all 50 states. Cannabinoid use has increased among patients who now may seek advice from physicians on the role of cannabinoids for certain chronic conditions. Dr. Jeanette Tetral, the general internist, does not recommend cannabinoids for the patient. She notes the poor quality of the literature and also is particularly concerned with the potential for adverse events. She cites literature showing a large potential for cannabis use disorder or cannabis withdrawal symptoms following periods of cessation or reduction in use. Dr. Kevin Hill, the psychiatrist, has a more favorable view of the medical use of cannabinoids. He recommends a balanced risk-benefit discussion with the patient and suggests considering its use. Go to annals.org to read the article, watch videos of the grand rounds, and an interview with the patient, and earn CME and MOC credit. Next are updated recommendations from the American College of Physicians regarding the use of remdesivir in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. The ACP recommends the following. Consider remdesivir for five days to treat hospitalized patients with COVID-19 who do not require mechanical ventilation or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Consider extending the use of remdesivir to 10 days to treat hospitalized patients with COVID-19 who require mechanical ventilation or ECMO within a five-day course. Avoid initiating remdesivir to treat hospitalized patients with COVID-19 who are already on mechanical ventilation or ECMO. Based on the systematic review conducted by the Minneapolis VA Evidence Synthesis Program that has been updated through December 2020, this version represents a change from the previous classifications of moderate and severe disease to now describe disease severity according to respiratory support requirements. The ACP's Scientific Medical Policy Committee will monitor emerging evidence to determine its impact on the main findings and conclusions and issue additional updates as needed. The next article addresses racial disparities in COVID-19. Researchers from Kaiser Permanente, the Permanente Medical Group, and Stanford Cancer Institute studied health records for 3.5 million patients in the Kaiser Health System, more than 91,000 of whom received a COVID-19 test between February 1st and May 31st, 2020. 
Those data showed that Latino patients were nearly four times as likely as white patients to become infected with the virus, while Asian and Black patients were two times as likely to test positive for COVID-19 compared to white patients. The odds of hospitalization were also higher for Latino, Asian, and Black patients with COVID-19 than for white patients. However, the study did not find racial disparities in mortality among patients hospitalized after infection. The researchers concluded that while race was a major factor in likelihood of infection, it contributed in a minor way to hospitalization, admission, and death. For those adverse outcomes, age was a major predictor. According to the authors, these findings reinforce that health systems should aim to mitigate the spread of COVID-19 in their highest-risk communities by seeking to reduce transmission among the most vulnerable. The next article is very relevant to the same. Recent surveys suggest that only 18% of Black Americans and 40% of Latinx Americans trust that a COVID-19 vaccine will be effective, and even fewer trust that it will be safe. The impact of this mistrust is alarming. Fewer than half of Black Americans report the intent to get vaccinated against COVID-19. To reduce the disproportionate burden of COVID-19 among people of color, this mistrust must be addressed and healthcare providers are in a unique position to address patients' concerns. The authors of the commentary detail four specific strategies to help promote trust in conversations about COVID-19 vaccine with patients of color. The authors say healthcare providers should lead with listening, tailor responses to patient concerns, use accessible language, and acknowledge uncertainty. Prioritizing these discussions using these strategies may help increase the acceptance of COVID-19 vaccinations and improve health outcomes among persons of color. And continuing with the topic of COVID-19 vaccine, the next article reports a survey of Los Angeles area healthcare workers about getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Researchers from the University of California surveyed a volunteer cohort of 1,069 asymptomatic healthcare workers employed by the University of California, Los Angeles, to track incidents and risk factors of severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 infection. As an addendum, a cross-sectional survey designed to assess attitudes towards vaccines, including prospective acceptance of novel coronavirus vaccines, was distributed to participants in September 2020 and completed online through October 2020. Among the participants, fewer than half felt that a novel coronavirus vaccine would protect them against COVID-19. Just over one-third of participants expressed confidence in the scientific vetting process for the COVID-19 vaccines, with almost half reporting they would not be willing to participate in vaccine trials. Most participants indicated they would delay vaccination once coronavirus vaccines became available for distribution. 49.4% would prefer to wait and see how the vaccine affects others first, and 16.1% would not get it soon but indicated they might get it in the future and 1.3% reported never intending to get vaccinated. Compared with prescribing clinicians, other healthcare workers were about 20 to 30% more likely to report wanting to delay or decline a coronavirus vaccine when all other demographic factors were held equal. Participants identifying as Asian or Latino were less likely to accept vaccination immediately upon availability compared with those in other racial and ethnic groups. Healthcare workers aged 50 or older were more likely than their younger co-workers to accept vaccination right away. Next is a report that illustrates how a missed case of SARS-CoV-2 infection in a hospitalized patient led to a cluster of cases among patients and healthcare workers despite robust control policies 
in the hospital facility. The authors from Harvard Medical School, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute, Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Massachusetts Department of Health discuss the cases and insights that may inform future measures to protect patients and staff. While the patient had tested negative twice on admission, the investigators surmised that he was contagious from at least hospital day three and infected staff and patients for at least a week before detection. During this time, the patient had multiple transfers between units and services and also shared rooms with uninfected patients, which contributed to the spread. In addition, failure to wear eye protection and limitations of personal protective equipment among those with near-range exposure to the patient may have contributed to some spread. According to the authors, this case highlights important lessons about the limitations of admission testing. They stress the importance of obtaining more than one sample in high-risk patients, among other improved testing strategies. The authors also note that there is high risk for roommate-to-roommate -roommate transmissions in the setting of occult acute infection. They also note the potential value of serial testing to identify infections incubating on admission. They say opportunities to improve adherence to eye protection and masking of patients, surgical masks and face shields for providers with neurorange exposure to symptomatic patients, and the value of whole genome sequencing could also help define and contain hospital clusters. In an accompanying editorial from University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, Authors say that this case is just one example that exposes the many weaknesses in our healthcare systems, including insufficient training and infection protection. While no single practice was identified as the culprit, there are hints, as there have been with past outbreaks, that small lapses in infection prevention may add up to transmission because of the high-risk activities that occur in healthcare settings. Also new is a History of Medicine article that offers lessons from the 1918 influenza pandemic that demonstrate why school closures and other restrictions on mass gatherings are likely necessary today to control the spread of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Authors from the University of Zurich reviewed detailed public health records from a region in Switzerland to study the effect of school closures, restrictions on mass gatherings, and other measures on the size and duration of the 1918 Spanish influenza epidemic. Similar data collected in Switzerland during the present COVID-19 epidemic were also analyzed, and the two public health responses were compared. I encourage you to read this very engaging and very informative historical account. On February 12th, Annals published the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices 2021 Recommended Adult Immunization Schedule that includes changes to several vaccines, including influenza, hepatitis A, human papillomavirus, and the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. The schedule also includes interim recommendations for COVID-19 vaccination. The schedule, which even when you're not in the midst of a pandemic can be challenging to implement, features revised content and has been harmonized with the child and adolescent immunization schedule. The adult immunization schedule is published annually to consolidate and summarize updates to the committee's recommendations on vaccination of adults and to assist healthcare providers in implementing the current recommendations. The authors note that physicians should pay careful attention to the details found in the vaccine notes section as they clarify who needs what vaccine, when, and at what dose. And the next article addresses a Zika virus candidate vaccine. AD26ZIKV.001 is an adenovirus-based vaccine based on a similar platform to the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. The phase one trial published in Annals showed promising safety and immunogenicity of the Zika vaccine candidate. The researchers say the vaccine warrants further development should Zika 
reemerge. And there's another article that also concerns Zika. A 2019 simulation study found that screening the blood supply for Zika, which began in 2016, was not cost-effective in the 50 states during the first year. Despite these findings, the Blood Products Advisory Committee recommended continuing universal screening, which cost blood centers a collective 8 to 13 million each month. Discussions on this policy have been tabled due to the coronavirus pandemic, but the modelers suggest that these data could help inform regulatory decisions. The current report used a simulation model to estimate the relationship between the rate of Zika infectious donations and the rate of adverse outcomes due to transfusion transmitted Zika in the 50 states without screening and estimate the 2018 cost effectiveness of universal screening. At the rate of Zika infectious donations from 2018, the report estimates that the rate of serious adverse events from transfusion transmitted Zika would be below one congenital Zika syndrome case every 1,484 years and one Guillain-Barre syndrome case every 1,035 years. The report also estimates that universal screening with mini-pool nucleic acid testing, the current standard, costs $5.1 billion per quality-adjusted life year saved. Immune checkpoint inhibitors can increase survival and lead to long-lasting responses in patients with melanoma. But because immune checkpoint inhibitors have been shown to cause immune-related adverse events mimicking immunologic diseases, patients with pre-existing autoimmune disease have been excluded from clinical trials. In the study reported in the next article, researchers from Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands studied over 4,000 patients enrolled in the Dutch Melanoma Treatment Registry to test the hypothesis that serious immune-related adverse events would occur more frequently in patients treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors with advanced melanoma and autoimmune diseases than in patients without autoimmune disease. They also compared baseline characteristics, treatment choices, response, and survival after immune checkpoint inhibition therapy. They found that tumor response to immune checkpoint inhibitor treatment and incidence of immune-related adverse events of grade 3 or higher were similar in patients with and without pre-existing autoimmune disease of rheumatologic or endocrine origin in daily clinical practice. For patients with inflammatory bowel disease, the researchers noted higher incidence of severe colitis and early discontinuation of treatment due to toxicity. These findings suggest that physicians do not need to withhold immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy in patients with the most common autoimmune diseases. However, close monitoring in patients with inflammatory bowel disease is advised. The topic of this month's In the Clinic Review is pancreatitis. Go to annals.org for practical guidance on the prevention, diagnosis, and management of this condition. You'll also find the latest episode of the Annals on Call podcast. The topic this time is endocarditis associated with injection of illicit drugs, an Annals for Hospitalist commentary on identifying high-risk patients who present to the hospital with syncope, and new on being a doctor and on being a patient essays. This brings us to the end of the February 16th, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I appreciate your listening and hope you will go to annals.org to delve into some of the new material I've highlighted here. As always, there are many opportunities to earn CME and MOC credit if you do. Stay well, get your COVID-19 vaccine, and encourage others to do the same as soon as the vaccine becomes available to them. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support. <laughs>